welcome back to the show, everybody. And today, we are, we're just going to get right into it. There has been a lot that's gone on over the last couple, or over the last couple of weeks, over the last couple of days, I should say, both with the NBA playoffs and just news in and around the NBA world. And there was this one story in particular that really captivated me. And it was about Scottie Pippen. This was, I think, like last Thursday or something. This was on June 24th, so five days ago, which would make it Tuesday today, 24th. It was last Thursday. Tyler Tynes, a writer for GQ, sat down with NBA legend, NBA Hall of Famer, six-time NBA champion, Scottie Pippen. And he titled this piece, Scottie Pippen has something to say. And it was a sit-down, you know, sit-down, back-and-forth style interview where Scottie Pippen who is doing a whole bunch now. He's releasing a bourbon soon, I believe, at some point this year. He also has a memoir coming out, what is it, this fall, and they just talked about everything. And what drew my attention to this was he mentioned Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets had been eliminated from playoff contention, or not from playoff contention, from championship contention. Um, Shortly before this came out, I believe, and they, I'm, I'm going to just read you the quote. So, Tyler asks Scotty Pippen, or it says this to Scotty, quote, staying in that era of basketball, there are people who put you up on a big pedestal. Mark Jackson said on the Dan Patrick show this month that he'd rather have Jordan guard him than you because of how physical you were on that end. And Scotty replied, quote, guys that I played against, Mark Jackson, those kinds of guys, they have that level of respect. They don't like to be singled out as a team that Michael Jordan beat. Nah, Michael Jordan didn't beat them. The Chicago Bulls beat them. The Chicago Bulls were the better team. It's not an individual game. You can't go into basketball and beat nobody with an individual record. And I use this example of what happened to Kevin Durant just the other day. This was the first time we've ever really seen Kevin Durant have to be the man and bring the team home. We ain't never had... we ain't never really had to see that because he's had Russell Westbrook, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson. He's been beating people, definitely in Golden State, by committee, with a team. He did that. But that team already knew how to win without KD. But you put KD in Brooklyn, and Kyrie Irving gets hurt, and James Harden ain't that guy. Now KD not only has to score for them, but also make plays for them. And this is no knock to KD, but they asked me, quote, has he surpassed LeBron James? And my answer was, LeBron James knows team basketball better than Kevin Durant. And, um, oh yeah, he continues. KD can score better than LeBron. Probably always has been able to, but has he surpassed LeBron? Nah. He tried to beat the Milwaukee Bucks instead of utilizing his team. You know what I'm saying? LeBron James would have figured out how to beat them and he wouldn't have been exhausted and he may not have taken the last shot, but LeBron ain't KD and KD ain't LeBron. KD is a shooter, a scorer, but he doesn't have what LeBron has. Um, he later goes on. So then what else? Oh, so this is skipping a little bit of the conversation. So then what else does Kevin Durant, of all people, need to learn at this point? Scotty replies, he needs to learn how to utilize his team. He has to learn how to set his teammates up to be better. That's it. As great as he is, there's a cap to his talent. He could have easily made that three, killed them in regulation, and we wouldn't have been talking about this, but I knew going into overtime, he wasn't going to make it. He was taking all the shots. You done played the whole game, bro. 53 minutes. Scotty didn't say that, but that was how (laughs) Kevin Durant played every minute of that game, he played 53 minutes. And you've got guys physically wearing you down. You're going to lose. Giannis was under the same stress, but not quite. Giannis got rest, 
and he didn't have to score every time. KD, he got no rest and pretty much had to put a bucket on the board every time they went down. And he did that. But that's a lot. If he had the chance to do it all over again, he would probably do it the same way. But he doesn't have any more. But, but he ain't have no more. Oh, yeah. But he ain't have no more. Okay, yeah, I got it. He shot that last shot, and it was shorter than Giannis's free throw shots. Haha, <laughs> very funny. Scottie Pippen. So, this is very... Um, I agree with Scotty on some points. When he says that you're not going to beat anyone on an individual level, you need a team, I totally get that. Every year, every year, and this has always been throughout NBA history, the better teams, the better, more, uh, the better teams with more depth and more chemistry have more often than not proven to be the best teams in the league. Now, what Scotty Pippen is... Failing to understand, and I think comparing Kevin Durant to LeBron James in this regard is very um, just uh, ignorant, I guess, because LeBron is a different kind of player than Kevin Durant. They are both once-in-a-lifetime type players, but to super varying degrees. LeBron James is Magic Johnson on steroids with a little bit of Michael Jordan in him. Kevin Durant is if Kareem Abdul-Jabbar could score from anywhere at any point in the game. Kevin Durant doesn't need to utilize his teammates more because that's not his job. There's a reason why his successful teams have featured somebody like Russell Westbrook, have featured somebody like Steph Curry, have featured guys like James Harden and Kyrie Irving. because. Kevin Durant is not a playmaker. He's a guy that when you need a bucket, you're going to put the ball in his hands. James Harden is going to give the ball to KD and be like, go get a bucket right now. And guess what? Kevin Durant's going to get a bucket. LeBron, as great as LeBron is, he does not have that type of scoring talent, at least not anymore. And it's weird that Scottie Pippen even brings LeBron into the conversation because... LeBron didn't find a way to beat the Phoenix Suns. And a lot of the similarities between those two guys, LeBron and KD, are that their teams got eliminated because of just, they were flat out unlucky. They were flat out unlucky. Why did the Phoenix Suns beat the Los Angeles Lakers? Well, probably the biggest point is that Anthony Davis was hurt. Now, Phoenix, and we'll talk, to, we'll talk about them a little bit later, Phoenix is playing spectacular basketball. They are way better than I thought they were going to be. But the Lakers not having Anthony Davis really just poked a whole bunch of holes in their championship ship. And this was before we realized that DeAndre Ayton was a fucking menace. So now you have the Brooklyn Nets who have Kevin Durant, who averaged like 35 points a night for the series, had a 49 piece in, I think it was like game five or something, and then has... No, and then had like 48 points in game seven and lost because the team was just not giving him any help. So they're in that series with no Kyrie. Kyrie gets hurt in game four, done for the year, done for the year, effectively. So James Harden has to come back. And I spoke about this last week, but you're already down basically one star player because James Harden was in no position to come back at that point. And he was not at his best. The numbers show it. He played like shit, but the Nets still needed him on the court. So 
how are you going to say that Kevin Durant needs to utilize his teammates more if one that's not in his skill set and we know that's not in his skill set and that's again that's not a knock to him because look at somebody like Kawhi Leonard Kawhi Leonard who also unfortunately is out right now is very similar to Kevin Durant in the sense that he is a significantly better scorer than he is a playmaker and that's okay as long as you have other playmakers on the team with no Spencer Dinwiddie with no Kyrie Irving, with no James Harden, or with half a James Harden, I should say James Harden on one leg, more or less, who is the Nets' playmaker? It has to be Kevin Durant. And to his credit, Kevin Durant, each of the last three seasons, has averaged more than five assists a night, which is higher than his career average. So he's become a better passer. He's become a more intelligent playmaker. He's understanding how to read the basketball game and see things three, four, I don't know, five plays ahead, perhaps, but that's still not his strength. Late in the game, you want your players to play to their strengths, and Kevin Durant's strengths is getting bucket after bucket after bucket, much like Giannis's strength in that series was attacking the Nets' fragile defense. They didn't have a big body to put in front of Giannis to, protect, to stop him from getting into the paint, which was why it was so bizarre when Giannis would settle for these weird threes or these one dribble pull-up jumpers in the mid-range because that's not him. And it showed that when he was going to the basket, even if he gets fouled and he's not making the free throws, he's still way better off doing that. So Scotty fails to address the fact that the Nets put Kevin Durant in an an unfavorable position. I mean, that was really my biggest takeaway from that. Um, And again, comparing him to LeBron, I just feel is very um, out of left field just because they are so, so different from one another. It's, It's like comparing LeBron to Kobe. It's like comparing LeBron to Jordan. You can compare the accolades that they have and you can compare their resumes. But when it comes down to it, the type of player that all these guys are is so different. And obviously they're gonna play the game differently. But then to also say that, what it is like, oh, LeBron would have tried. Where did he say? What did, I'm trying to think. Oh, when he says LeBron James would have figured out how to beat them and he wouldn't have been exhausted and he may not have taken the last shot. How, how are you going to say that? LeBron didn't figure out how to beat the Phoenix Suns. And sometimes there is nothing to figure out. If you're missing one of your best players, and you're going up against a team like Phoenix or Milwaukee. And I said this going into the series. And I said this even before the playoffs started. I was more worried about the Bucks playing the Nets than I was the Sixers. Because on paper, the Bucks are just as talented as the Brooklyn Nets are. They finished one game back of the Nets in the standings. Granted, I know the Nets had all these issues with injuries. But still, the Nets played remarkably well all season long. And the Bucks were right there. And the Bucks came out of this series as the underdog, technically, despite not having home court advantage. They won a Game 7 in Brooklyn. They won a Game 7 on the road. And one in which Kevin Durant set a record for the most points in a Game 7. Sometimes there really is just nothing to figure out. Sometimes you're just unlucky. And the Nets were unlucky. And credit to the Bucks because... They fucking capitalized 
on that. I did not think that the Bucks had... I don't want to say the moxie to pull off a victory, but there were times in that series where the Bucks just looked defeated. Their body language was so piss poor. And I know that Mike Budenholzer is not the greatest postseason coach, but, you know, to their credit, they took advantage of their opportunities. And then, of course, things got to Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Durant gets a hold. Well, he doesn't get a hold of Scottie Pippen. I got to find the exact tweet. I'm a little upset that I didn't have it already. Uh, pulled up I knew I should have done this I went ahead and I was proactive about pulling up the article um so I gotta find it this is pain where are we at uh okay here we go so uh, this Twitter account called top ball coverage took Pippin's quotes and created a bunch of graphics. Scotty Pippen on the difference between Kevin Durant and LeBron. And then Mr. Teabags on Twitter. I don't know who this guy is. Um, I think he's just I think he's just a Twitter user who went semi-viral. He goes, but if Kevin Durant would have hit that three at the end, his foot was on the line, y'all wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Then miss me with it. Which I understand. And Scotty says that in the article. He said that in the interview, but that didn't make it to um that didn't make it to this little graphic. So I'm not going to, you know, get on Mr. Teabags or anything. But that, you know, Scotty did say, you know, if Kevin Durant has that shot, we're not having this conversation, which is a lot of what happens in sports. You know, these one or two plays that decide a game, they ultimately dictate whether or not we talk about something. And then Kevin Durant chimes in. <laughs> this guy, Scott, also wanted to enjoy his summer, so he chose to rehab during the season. LOL. Yo, Scotty Pippen, they followed Phil, not you. And now I'm trying to, to find the one where he goes, oh, is this the same Scotty Pippen? Oh, <laughs> didn't the great Scotty Pippen refuse to go in the game for the last second shot because he was in his feelings? His coach drew up the play for a better shooter. This was what sent Twitter into a frenzy. This tweet by Kevin Durant got 21, got nearly 22,000 retweets, both regular retweets and quote retweets, and then 93,000 likes. This is one of Kevin Durant's best performing tweets. I already, I, I know for a fact. So this somehow, uh, I don't know what exactly transpired, but Scottie Pippen addressed not Kevin Durant's tweet but he did talk about the tweet he did talk about Kevin Durant's tweet but more so the instance behind it now <laughs> he goes on the Dan Patrick show this was tweeted out on what was that Monday I think yeah it was 23 hours ago at the time of recording Dan Patrick goes by saying it was a racial move then you're calling Phil Jackson a racist Pippen response I don't have a problem with that do you think Phil was a racist? And Scottie Pippen goes, oh yeah. And this was about the decision for Tony Kukoc to shoot the final shot in game three of the 1994 Eastern Conference semifinals against the Knicks. And then this, there was also this tweet right above it. Um, there are some quotes in, in Phil Jackson's, in his book, Maverick, white players are more often willing to run patterns and tour collectively because of the predominance of blacks in 
Pro basketball, the sport is rapidly disintegrating into a one-on-one -on -one sport. That is actually not true at all. Um, this is also via Reddit, by the way. It's a screenshot of a Reddit post. Credit to user Bang Bang v Beta Gang and user uh, MPA MPA Ten E. So. For Phil Jackson to say because of the predominance of blacks in pro basketball, the sport is rapidly disintegrating into a one-on-one -on -one sport. There are only five or six NBA teams who play with more than a superficial degree of team unity. That is wrong because the issue of basketball being a one-on-one -on -one sport is grassroots level. It's because AAU teams, a well, first of all, basketball is a year-round sport now. So kids are playing basketball Every force, every season, all four seasons, they're playing basketball. They're playing for the school. They're playing for club teams. They're playing for AAU. They're traveling throughout the summer to these tournaments. And it's about exposure. These kids want to be seen. And these kids' families want to be seen because ultimately, if they show out, they go to a good college, they're setting themselves up for success. So I don't hate it. But you can still get exposure and play basketball the right way. It's not stressed like that at the AAU level. Coaches do not stress the importance of team basketball and being able to run certain sets and being able to run a pick and roll properly. It's not a black or a white player thing. It's simply a coach a coaching philosophy thing. And there's and the reason we can say this is because in Europe, European coaches teach skill over athleticism. And I'm not saying you can teach athleticism, but more often than not High school players in the United States are just far and away more athletic, more explosive, faster, stronger, can jump higher than everybody else. And that is how they manage to garner all this attention. I'm not saying these guys aren't skilled because they certainly are skilled, but I don't think that coaches in the United States are putting enough of an emphasis on them sharpening their skills. And they're not really doing that until they get to the NBA. And that could possibly be why it takes guys so long to kind of just mature and become the final versions of themselves. I mean, look at someone like Devin Booker. Devin Booker is a superstar after being in the league for four years. And this is a guy who is definitely more skilled than he is athletic. Very much the same with Pau Gasol, Luka Doncic, uh, Marc Gasol as well. In Europe, they just have a different philosophy. So, it's not a black or a white thing. I think Phil Jackson is very out of pocket uh, for this. Um, I don't even know when the fuck this came out in his book, Maverick. I've never read this guy's book, but we're going to continue just because I think this is good content. Uh, on the Knicks, quote, the starting front court played, the starting front court played white basketball while guards played black basketball. Uh, black kids growing up want to be the superstar of the neighborhood. They want to be the toughest kids on the block, the richest, or once they get to the playground, the best one-on-one -on -one basketball players. White kids, on the other hand, usually are raised in more homogenous environments, which provides other outlets for personal expression. They're also constantly being taught the principle of subordinating their own personal glory for the good of the group. Now, to be fair to Phil, he wrote Maverick in 1976, a time when racial politics and views were very different from now. Okay, so surely as the years passed and he grew on to be more, and he grew as a human being, his views changed, right? And this is a snippet from October of 99. 
I don't mean to say that as a snide remark towards a certain population in our society, but they have a limitation of their attention span, and a lot of it is probably due to too much rap music going on in their ears. Okay, that's fucking what? October 2005, when asked about the dress code, I think it's important that the players take their end of it, get out of the prison garb and the thuggery aspect of basketball that has since... All right. Uh, that's a lot. Okay. This... Those last two things that I just read are wholly indefensible. I don't know what the fuck Phil Jackson is talking about, but one thing that at least I can attest to is that if you go to any playground, to any LA fitness, to any 24-hour fitness, anywhere where there are people playing amateur basketball, new Phil, they all want to be the best one-on-one -on -one player. They could be black, white, purple, brown, orange, yellow. They could be a fucking Smurf, a Teletubby. They could be fucking cosplaying as Wario. It doesn't matter. They all want to be the best one-on-one -on -one player. That's, it, it's just fucking, it's dumb for him to say this. Like, I get that Phil said this, this five decades ago almost at this point. But even then, just absolutely fucking ridiculous so now i forgot uh i forgot what the fuck i was saying oh i was talking about scotty pippen and uh tony kukoc now the 1994 <laughs> nba season or the chicago bulls season more or less it ended in seven games at the hands of the new york knicks so this game winning shot by kukoc really didn't change anything too drastically if anything it just extended the series for another game now i don't know if Phil Jackson drawing up a play for Tony Kukoc to win the game was a racially motivated decision. I can't say that. Tony, of course, being a Croatian, I believe, white, very, very much white, Mediterranean white, as it is in Scottie Pippen, being a black man. Um, I don't know if it was racially motivated. It was certainly bizarre. So I'm not surprised that Scottie Pippen was upset that he didn't get to take the last shot. Um, I think further compounding matters was he had just spent however many years before that being second fiddle to Michael Jordan. So there was almost no chance of him getting the last second shot. Uh, the ball was always in Jordan's hands at the end of the game. And I understand why Scottie Pippen was upset that he got passed over. Do I think that he should have taken himself out of the game? No, I think that was soft. I think that was just very selfish of him. Very just of just an overall bad look for the Chicago Bulls. And this guy's your leader. Like, I I don't think that anyone would be happy about their star player sitting out on the final possession of a playoff game. Like, could you imagine the media shitstorm that would happen if Kevin Durant or LeBron James or James Harden or Luka or Giannis or any of these guys sat out the final possession of a playoff game? Now, again, I have to stress that it's very odd for Phil to make this decision, but Tony Kukoc was a better shooter than a better three-point shooter than Scottie Pippen. Tony Kukoc is also, yes, he was a rookie when this happened, but he had been playing professional basketball in Europe and is one of the greatest European players of all time. So he had, he certainly had the credentials to warrant him taking the shot the last second. But then again, it comes down to this weird uh, coaching philosophy where with the game on the line, do you have your best player? take the final shot or do you have the hot hand take the final shot do you have someone who's better situationally 
in that regard. Uh, it's very much like we'll use LeBron James and Kyrie Irving when they were in Cleveland. Granted, Kyrie is significantly better <laughs> as an overall basketball player than Tony Kukoc was. But LeBron, the alpha of that team, the, the, the guy, the leader, the number one option, the reason that you know Cleveland experienced so much of the success a significantly worse three-point shooter than Kyrie Irving. Granted, I think it's more of a split decision in that regard. It doesn't. It's kind of hard to unanimously say either or, especially because both players are so dynamic. But we've seen this all throughout NBA history. You know, it's just, it was very odd. I don't know if it was racially motivated. I just think that Phil Jackson may have just had a lapse in judgment, thinking that... um you know, Tony Kukoc was the better option. And ultimately it worked because Tony wound up making the shot. Uh, we don't know if Scottie Pippen would have made that shot or not. We'll never know. But uh, it was definitely soft for Scottie Pippen to take himself out of the game. So uh, I 100%, I 100% on the side of Kevin Durant's jokes in that regard. But I could see why Scottie was in his feelings a little bit. And I think that's going to be everything on uh, the Scottie Pippen segment uh, i'm really actually fucking flabbergasted about some of those quotes i read from phil jackson those were fucking holy shit those were uh, <laughs> a different fucking level of just of just ignorance it very very bizarre so uh, i guess another thing some other some more of the nba current events going on recently three of the NBA's coaching vacancies were filled. Rick Carlisle goes to Indiana. Jason Kidd goes to Dallas. And the most newsworthy and the most um, the most talked about one was Chauncey Billups going to the Portland Trailblazers. Now, this was talked about a lot. A lot. But not for um, basketball reasons. And I'm just going to come out and say it. Well, I guess, obviously I'm going to come out and say it, but I'm not making some like fucking landmark finding. It came out that Chauncey Billups was um, involved or potentially involved in um, some sexual assault allegations back in 1997. So before... I get into everything else. I'm just going to give you the facts of the case. Now, this is from Sports Illustrated. Uh, so, well, the article is from Sports Illustrated, but there were a lot of reporters who talked about this. And it was strange when it came up because this has been under wraps for 24 years almost. Like, very few people knew about this. And Billups played his whole basketball career, transitioned into the front office for uh was it for the, I think it was for the LA Clippers I can't remember off the top of my head but he was also a media personality like and none of this ever came up like it it was and I'm not trying to defend it being hidden under wraps it's just like it was so shocking that something this serious and something this sizable could remain hidden for that long especially especially now in the information age where it's basically impossible to keep something hidden. Now, um, I'm going to be reading this from Sports Illustrated. Uh, I do want to preface this. They preface this 
as well. Uh, there is a content warning below are details about the alleged rape and sexual assault of a woman by multiple men, including Billups. That could be triggering for many readers. Discretion is advised. And I've read through this and it was, in fact, quite graphic. So um, if you don't really deal well with um, this type of uh, with this type of I don't even know how to describe it. If you are sensitive to this type of issue, I would definitely recommend um, skipping ahead. But I'm going to read this word for word just because I feel that it is I, I feel that this in its entirety is it, it needs it needs to be heard because it it was absolutely it was disgusting. And I'm sure you guys will feel the same way when I get to reading this. So it starts on November 9th, 1997. Jane Doe was at a comedy club with Antoine Walker, her on-again, off-again boyfriend. Also there were Chauncey Billups and Ron Mercer, Walker's rookie teammates with the Boston Celtics, as well as two longtime friends and other women. Doe hadn't previously met Billups or Mercer, but was acquainted with Walker's friends. Doe alleges that when the group was ready to leave, one of his friends told her that Walker wanted to go back to the Celtics star's luxury condo in Waltham, Massachusetts. While, the, while Doe claims that Billups drove her, Mercer and one of the remaining men to Walker's home. Billups later told police that he was never at Walker's condo that night. According to Billups, Doe initiated and performed consensual oral sex on him in his car, the full extent of their sexual interactions. Mercer also claimed he wasn't at Walker's home on November 9th, instead telling law enforcement he received oral sex from Doe at Billups' house. Doe, however, alleged she woke up naked the next morning in Walker's bed. In assertion, an assertion for which Billups and Mercer offered no explanation to police. Once at Walker's condo, Doe reported that she was led to a bedroom where Billups and, Mer and Mercer engaged in multiple, quote, unwanted, unquote, sex acts on her. One of Walker's friends reportedly forced Doe to perform oral sex on him at some point, asking Billups and Mercer, quote, yo, you want some? Doe allegedly blacked out during the attack, waking on November 10th in bed with one of Walker's friends, naked amid used condoms and condom wrappers littered across the floor. She then quickly called a friend saying, quote, something bad happened. Walker, for his part, denied Doe's allegations that he was asked to join in the alleged rape and claimed he never saw an assault take place on his residence. Doe was admitted to the Boston Medical Center the day after the reported assault, a rape kit revealing injuries to her throat, cervix, and rectum. There were also bruisings on Doe's back, and semen was found inside of her. That's very, very heavy stuff. And Billups, the extent of Billups's involvement is is unknown. Now, as a result, I'm trying to find where exactly um the punishment was handed out. I think. I'm fairly certain it was a civil suit and no criminal charges were ever filed, which is very strange considering the findings of the testing that was done on Jane Doe following the attack. There was DNA on her person, and I don't know the scope of forensic technology back in 1997, but wouldn't you just be able to extract a sample from everybody at the scene and use that to indict somebody i feel like that is I, again i don't i don't know if that's even possible i i, I don't know if that's 
uh, course of action that police that the police are able to even act upon but in theory like it would make sense um ultimately it was a civil suit they settled out of court um no criminal charges were filed and it's it's very it's so these types of situations especially i'm talking more so about um ones that aren't criminal cases like jason kidd was another guy who was talked about who has pleaded pled pleaded guilty to spousal abuse and dwi granted um the first crime being i don't want to downplay the um the just sheer um smooth brainedness that it takes for someone to drive while intoxicated but domestic abuse is a uh, horrible is a horrible offense and um, especially because another human being was hurt. Like if Jason Kidd was caught driving drunk and no one else was hurt, I mean, it's better off that way. Obviously, I'm glad that he, um, I'm glad that someone noticed before he could potentially do anything else. But those were criminal cases and Jason Kidd was charged for them. I don't think he served any jail time on either, but still it's on his rap sheet. Now this, this case with Chauncey Billups and the other, um, Celtics players who were there it's weird because we usually see he said she said cases but the evidence isn't as glaring as <laughs> this one like I get that a lot of these cases are he said she said but there is actual evidence that says that this woman was assaulted or even if you don't want to say she was assaulted that's something went down there were there was a um platonic relations between the people in between the people at the scene whether they were consensual or not um i would it would lead me to believe that these were non-consensual acts and something did in fact happen that evening in 1997 um i think it's disgusting it's it's abhorrent. It's honestly fucking mind blowing that the evidence was there and nothing, nothing was done about it. And this isn't like, you know, a super mega world icon did this. It was guys who were well, um, Phillips at least was a rookie. Like you would think they would still prosecute. Like it's just very um, it's it's very odd. And I think a lot of it is just the times like i feel like that shit would not fly nowadays still almost 25 years later but back then like it was just kind of uh, like it see i don't i don't even want to say that because i don't want to like i don't want to seem like i'm downplaying which i'm not but it's just how police handled certain things back in the day like a lot of it now is just because everything is so public and you can you know, almost force the police to act on certain things, I feel like. And it's just, um, it's just a shame that this young lady had to experience this. And I think it's even more shameful that no one was brought to justice, despite the fact being that there was evidence at the scene. And I'm thinking that, you know, due process, obviously you have to give these guys due process. That is, I feel with any, any legal case, it's someone's constitutional right to be to be afforded due process but like to not even 
reached that cape. They're not even reached that spot. It's just so, it's just so mind blowing to me. And I, I really don't know how to feel about Portland hiring Chauncey Billis because this isn't the first time that, you know, someone in the sports world has gotten a job based on past discretions. And ultimately, um, Neil Olshay was kind of just, you know, he didn't, he said something like he was talking about the situation, but not really saying anything. Um, this is also from the Sports Illustrated article asked by the Athletics Jason Quick earlier this week how Billups's um allegation factored into his candidacy. Olshay used the Blazers' then ongoing discussions with multiple candidates as cover to refuse to comment, saying, quote, I'm not commenting or discussing anything. We're speculating about our candidates until the search is completed. So Olshay is really just not, he's talking, but he's not saying anything. You know, he's giving the person, you know, the, it's not even like the PC, but it's typical business person speak. Like if you don't want to talk about something, you can't just come out and say, oh, I don't want to address this situation. You have to give some sort of bullshit argument as to why you don't want to talk about the situation as opposed to just, you know, answering the question. And granted, it is, I think it's a fair question by Jason Quick, but um, yeah, it's it's just a very difficult situation because there is no right answer to that question, right? It's a it's a very difficult question to be asked, and there's no right answer to it. There's no right answer to it because even though legally nothing happened, it's just you you read the story. And you take into account all the evidence. And it's, it's just very perplexing. So the when I was talking or when I was thinking about how these um, coaching hires would affect these potential teams, I was looking at it in a basketball sense. Not because I'm, you know, trying to uh, excuse what they may or may not have done. But ultimately... These guys, these organizations make decisions on how they, on how confident they are in these candidates being able to make their teams better. And in both cases, with the Dallas Mavericks and the Portland Trailblazers, I do not see these guys making a big impact on either team. And especially Portland, because the, in the wake of everything, um, Damian Lillard was just, he was just pestered relentlessly on something that he had supposedly no involvement in. Now, obviously at the time of this happening, Damian Damian Lillard was like seven or eight years old. I believe, I don't even know like how widely reported this was at the time. And Dame growing up in Oakland, I don't know if he would have had Boston Celtics news so readily available to him because again, this wasn't, there was no internet. There was no Twitter. There wasn't Facebook. There was no Google. Well, I mean, there was Google, but Google wasn't what it is now. Like you couldn't, you didn't have access to all of these stories at your fingertips. So I'm not surprised that he didn't know about it because so many of us didn't know about it. Um, I do feel that regardless of what people say, granted, there is no evidence to support to support this, but just knowing how being a superstar works in the NBA, the the organization would be dumb to not consult their superstar on decisions like this. Now, 
I think Damien Lillard, Dame, uh, because I have a hard time saying Lillard for whatever reason. I think Dame was given a list of guys, and he's like, which one of these guys do you like? Lord, do you think any of these guys would be good for us in our coaching search? And he may have just, you know, because Dame, from everything I've seen, he's very, like, even keel. He's not one to... I feel like he only... He, all of his decisions are what would benefit the Blazers. So it wouldn't shock me if he was like, I like Chauncey, but you guys are the basketball operations experts. Pick who you think is best for us. Now, Dame may have endorsed Chauncey Billups. I'm, in fact, I'm, you know, I don't even remember the specifics of it, but, you know, people on Twitter were going at him. And, you know, the Blazers fan base was very divided on the situation in how people were treating Dame because of it, not because of, Phillips's accusation or allegation I should say but there were people who were bullying Dame for this and then people who were like guys this wasn't like he didn't he might not have had any decision decision in this and now everyone is worried about Dame wanting to be out of Oakland or not Oakland out of Portland and there was even a report that set by uh Chris Haynes that spoke along those lines like how the team's lack of contention as well as the backlash from hiring Chauncey Billups might might force Dame to request out after almost um, like eight years or something, eight, nine years of being in Portland. But yeah, I don't think that Chauncey Billups is going to have this tremendous impact on the Portland Trailblazers because their team is just at this point not built to contend. And even more so, Chauncey Billups being a rookie head coach, like he was a fantastic player. Don't get it twisted. On the court, this guy was a great player. Off the court, obviously, things are a lot different. But being a great player doesn't translate to being a great coach. And the Blazers, in order to contend, will have to trade either CJ McCollum or Yusuf Nurkic. Their big three is not at the same level as other big threes across the league. Look at Los Angeles Clippers. They don't have a big three, but their two guys are two top 15 players. I would argue. Same thing with the Lakers. Then you look at Dallas. Is Dallas going to make a move in free agency this season? My friend Denim has a conspiracy that I kind of buy into that Kawhi Leonard might end up in Dallas, which would sh- it would shift the entire balance of the Western Conference because Dallas is very, very much in the same position that Portland is. They are a fantastic offensive team. They're a fantastic offensive team, but they don't have anyone to lock down on the perimeter. Kawhi Leonard in Dallas, at least, solves their defensive issues. Well, not all of them, but some of them, and makes their offense significantly better. Portland would have to bring in a player close to that caliber to actually be able to contend. And all of the money that they're paying these guys, they have almost, you know, negative cap flexibility, like, I don't see anything coming from this. I think, you know, they they got rid of Terry Stotts because the players were tired of listening to him. Like that's what happens. It's just it it becomes a fatig- it becomes fatiguing. Hearing the same voice game after game. And I I don't think there is there's nowhere for Portland to go. I I really I sincerely think they're at their ceiling. And to break that ceiling, they're going to have to part with some member of their big three. And 
I say some member, it really is just either CJ or Nurkic. Because if you trade Dame, it, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. Because what is his value, right? When I look at Dame, I see one of the more untouchable players in the league. Because there aren't many guys that compare to him. And when trading superstars, the deals are so convoluted. They're so messy. They're just so, like, they're so mind-numbingly ridiculous that it's almost not worth it. Like, just look at what Brooklyn had to do to trade for James Harden. Four teams were involved. Like, nine players were involved. I don't know. A whole bunch of draft picks. And that was because Houston fucked up and got shit out of all the good players. They fucked themselves. The Houston Rockets fucked themselves. If you have a competent organization, that's not going to happen. And in those, t- in those types of trades, one of the teams has to be incompetent. The Trailblazers may very well be that team. They may very well be that team. I mean, they decided to go with Chauncey Billups, who, allegations aside, again, might not be a good coach. You know, everyone was talking about Becky Hammond. And um, also, I think Ime Udoka signed a deal as well with, uh, with somebody who, um, he was an assistant coach with the, uh, with the Nets, and he had been gaining a lot of traction over the last couple of years. Um, also, Mike D'Antoni got an interview with the Blazers and nothing came of it uh, for whatever reason. I don't know. I feel that, you know, Mike D'Antoni would have been an okay pairing for them. But again, I don't think he's, I don't think he has enough. All the changes that they're going to do that Portland needs to make, it's all front office related. And there was also um, Becky Hammond. Becky Hammond is someone who is obviously very deserving of a head coaching position. But for some strange reason, he's interviewed with so many different teams. So many different teams. And has not yet landed a job with any of them. And we don't know. If, you know, maybe Becky Hammond is going into these interviews and being like, you know what, I've got a pretty good thing here with the Spurs. And by pretty good thing, she's in line to be their next head coach when Greg Popovich retires. And guess what? She knows that team better than she knows all of these other teams that she could possibly sign with. So... I'm sure there have been a handful of organizations that have interviewed her and thought, eh, you know what? Maybe the philosophies don't align, right? Because coming from the Spurs, they have a whole different set of ideologies to basically every other team in the NBA, right? The only other teams that share the Spurs philosophies are guys that have come from the Spurs coaching tree. Mike Budenholzer, Kenny Atkinson. Granted, he's not, an assist- he's not, um, he's not a head coach anymore. But when he was a head coach, he employed a lot of those Greg Popovich, those Spurgeon tactics. And I don't like, it might just be too much stress for Becky Hammond to go in and try to revamp a whole franchise, especially because in the NBA, the coach is not going to do that. If you want to change the franchise, you have to bring in a star player. And I think that Becky Hammond is just kind of like, you know what? As cool as it would be to be a head coach for one of these other teams, I think that her best fit is with the Spurs. And I'm sure that, you know, Greg Popovich has, has said nothing but nice things to her throughout the years. 
And I'm sure that he is, you know, in communication with her and is like, and is just trying to be as unbiased as possible. And I'm sure he thinks that the Spurs are the best place for Becky Hammond. And I think that Greg Popovich is getting towards the end of his coaching timeline. I mean, the guy's been in it forever. He's the greatest coach of all time, at least in my eyes. Granted, he doesn't have the um, doesn't have the hardware that some of these other coaches have. But dude, this guy was he led one of the longest running dynasties in sports history. Every year, for the better part of two decades, the Spurs were in the playoffs. Even when they sucked, they still managed to make the playoffs. And during their peak, they were a contender each and every year. Five titles. Coached multiple Hall of Famers. Like, if Greg Popovich is telling you something, you're inclined to listen. Now, again, this is all speculation. I don't know anything about this. For all I know, Becky Hammond has gone into all of these interviews done well, performed well, or maybe she didn't, or maybe she didn't perform up to the level that um, the organizations expected her to. But for all I know, they could just be denying her. They could just be denying her. And it would be fucked up because you can't use, you can't say that she would be a rookie head coach as something against her. Because guess what? No fucking shit. She's a rookie head coach. But when has that ever stopped any other team? Uh, the fucking Portland Trailblazers, for one. My Brooklyn Nets hired a rookie head coach. And not only was Steve Nash a rookie head coach, he had never even had assistant coaching experience. Like, so to not want to hire Becky Hammond because she would be a rookie head coach, any team that says that, and no team will say that because they know it's bullshit. It's it's just that. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. Um, Because, dude, she's been the fucking lead assistant to one of the greatest head coaches, to one of the greatest head coaches in sports history. So um, I think that Becky Hammond will get a job very soon. Um, if I had to guess, I think she's just like what's going on with the Spurs. And I think that she's best suited to be the, the next head coach of the San Antonio Spurs. But we're 50 minutes into the show and I haven't even talked about the postseason yet. So um, yeah, this is going to be, this is probably going to be a long one. I don't know where to begin because I've had a tremendous amount of fun watching both of the conference final series, particularly Clippers Suns, because that has been the um the more competitive series. They played on Monday night, and the Clippers pulled out an amazing performance. They got a hell of a night from Paul George. I think he had like 40 points, 41 points, 13 rebounds. This guy was locked in. He was locked in. This is some of the best basketball that playoff p had ever played and granted this was without Kawhi leonard i'm actually gonna go and pull up the fucking box score if my potato ass internet would load so i don't remember okay 116 to 102 was the final los angeles reduces the deficit to just one game and this was in phoenix by the way so the Clippers, for whatever reason, are just an exceptional road team. And, you know, they, they just, they won't fucking die. The Los Angeles Clippers are somehow not dead after trailing 2-0 against the Dallas Mavericks. Um, who did they play in the fucking, in the semis? I've, uh, it, God, I hate that I don't remember this. The Utah Jazz. That was a, that was their easiest series by far, I believe, uh, Easiest series went to six games, so I'm not like shitting on the Jazz, but um, 
Yeah. 41 points, 13 rebounds from Paul George, who shot 15 of 20 from the floor in an elimination game against a Suns team that I think is the best team in basketball right now. And this series has been all over the place. from Game one, all the way up to game five. Chris Paul didn't play in, what was it? The first, he didn't play in the first, uh, he didn't play in the first game, the first two games, something like that. Chris Paul was absent for a little bit of the series. Kawhi Leonard has been absent for, I think, the entire series. This guy is dealing with another mysterious knee injury. Like, what the fuck is going on with Kawhi Leonard? I, I, I could, I would have to think that there is a serious ligament tear for Kawhi Leonard to not be playing in an elimination game in the Western Conference Finals. There's got to be something serious. There's got to there's got to be because why else would he not play? James Harden had a grade 2 hamstring strain and he played the closing games against the Milwaukee Bucks. Like what's going on? I'm sincerely concerned for Kawhi Leonard. Or are the Clippers just babying him? But the thing is you can't baby a guy when you're on the verge of being eliminated. And I think that Kawhi Leonard would be like, hey, I'm good to go. I have to fucking play. My team needs me. As of now, Kawhi Leonard is arguably the best player in the playoffs. It's either between him or Giannis. Either one of those guys could take home the title of being the best player in the playoffs. And he's not even playing. He hasn't played yet. So I don't know what's going on with him. But I do know that the Clippers are fucking really impressive lately so you got that performance of Paul George who got a lot of help from Reggie Jackson as well Reggie Jackson has been particularly impressive because I think he has more 20 point games in the playoffs than he did all season long in fact for this series he's averaging about 22 shooting 47% from the field and 37% from three now what's going on with the Phoenix Suns and ultimately they lost last night because Paul George just took over the game they just took over the game. I'm looking at the numbers right now also. Wow, I didn't realize that the Suns defense was fucking tragically bad last night. <laughs> Holy shit. The Clippers shot 55% from the field last night. Of course, buoyed by uh, Reggie Jackson and Paul George. But a lot of the Clippers offense was just like, Paul George has the ball, and you're going to put somebody in front of him, and they're going to get embarrassed. Paul George was just taking guys one-on-one and fucking shitting on them. I mean, the Clippers had 20 assists last night. Not an extraordinary amount, but the Suns had more. Granted, it was only two more, and their offense was objectively worse. It was a lot of isolation. Not a lot of isolation, but a lot of putting Paul, the ball in Paul George's hands and you know him just putting the team on his back. And that's what great players do in elimination games. When their team is backed into the tightest corner, they have to sack up, for <laughs> for lack of a better term, and bring the team to victory. And you know, they got very the Clippers got very lucky because also they got 15 points from Demarcus Cousins off the bench. Outside of Demarcus Cousins, you know how many bench points they had? Four. They had four bench points. And this is from Nick Batum, who played 30 minutes 
played 30 minutes, gave them two points. Luke Kennard played 20 minutes, gave them a fat goose egg. And then, to be fair, even the rest of the starting lineup was, well, I say the rest of the starting lineup, but I'm mainly talking about uh, Patrick Beverly and Terrence Mann, who, are, who combined for 11 points last night. Marcus Morris played fantastically, 22 on 9 of 16 shooting, but it was also Reggie Jackson who really helped shape the focus of this game. Like, when your point guard is playing good basketball, it's very difficult for the offense to stagnate. And I'm just going to take a look at the Suns box score. And, dude, their offense in the fourth quarter, it was like from a fucking game four. It was so difficult to watch because I just felt like the Suns abandoned everything that made them elite. Now, of course, I don't know how accurate that is, but especially towards the end of the fourth quarter, like they had made a run. And they had cut the lead to like six or seven, I think. And then the Clippers took control yet again. And towards the end of the fourth quarter, I'm watching it and they're just settling for garbage shots. They're settling for garbage shots. And I know, listen, when you got Devin Booker, it's tough for there to be a garbage shot. But, you know, sometimes it is. Shots early in the shot clock, contested shots early in the shot clock. I don't care from where on the court, unless it's a layup. Anywhere outside the restricted area, a contested shot early in the shot clock is a bad shot. And that's what I saw from the Phoenix Suns last night. Not a lot, but enough to disrupt the flow of the offense. But, I mean, like, overall, Devin Booker and Chris Paul did not really play that well. Devin D-Book, 9-22. CP3, 8 of 19. I mean, granted, CP3 also had 8 assists and only 2 turnovers. Did have 22 points. And Devin Booker had 31 as well because he was getting to the free throw line. So they weren't negatives to their team. Granted, they're plus minuses otherwise, but plus minus is a flawed statistic. We know this. Um, It's just the Suns are at their best when Chris Paul is running the offense like an actual offense. There have been times where I've watched the Phoenix Suns this year And I have been blown away by the level of just their proficiency running half-court sets, how just efficient everybody's movements are coming off of screens, whether it's a staggered screen, whether it's a pin down, whether it's a double screen with Devin Booker coming up up around the top of the key. Like everything about their half-court offense, half-court, everything about their half-court offense is commendable. And, you know, I think that, they just strayed away from it in the fourth quarter of a Monday night's game. And, you know, just going through the rest of the series, game four was a fucking... Dude, I don't understand how people in the 90s consistently watched games like that. How they combined for a hundred... They combined for 164 points. In two basketball teams, like people watched this throughout the 90s and were like, this is good basketball. Phoenix shot 36% from the floor. The Clippers shot 32% from the floor. Let's see. Efficiency-wise, the Clippers averaged not even one point per 100 possessions. Their offensive rating was 89.1. They had 89. They had a pace of 89.8. The Suns, not much better. 93.6 offensive rating. Like, dude, that was a fucking tragic game. Like, I, oh, God, it was so bad. I had, like, the game literally put me to sleep 
the game actually put me to sleep. And I only woke up because my girlfriend dropped her, she dropped her phone. That was the only reason I woke up. I woke up and the fucking game was done. I'm like, wow, what a literal snooze fest. Just horrible. But every other game this series has been, you know, quite impressive. This, the Clippers had that 14-point victory in Game 3. I'm literally just reading all of this off of my computer, so I apologize. Um, like, very back and forth. And it really is, a lot of it is when Chris Paul and Devin Booker are playing, like, bad, and they're playing badly together, the Suns have almost no counter, which I find to be really strange and granted that 14 point loss in game three that was Chris Paul's first game back so the rust was apparent but even then like campaign the game before had 29 and you know Devin Booker I'm looking at the numbers and I didn't realize that he has been you know quite um he's played not that great he's played not that great this series shooting 39 38 percent from the field I mean 26 points is good but if you're shooting 38 percent to get there you know, it's it's whatever. Chris Paul, like, the Clippers defense, I think I severely underrated. I severely underrated the Clippers defense throughout the postseason. And I think some of it is just because, like, dude, uh, I just, like, I, I don't know. I don't know why I underrated the Clippers. I also picked Phoenix because of Kawhi Leonard's injury, but also because I felt that Phoenix was the more well-rounded team. Of course, they have been. They still maintain a 3-2 series lead, but like they've got to just find ways to get easy shots for Chris Paul and especially Devin Booker. Especially Devin Booker. Like Get him going downhill. Monty Williams has done a fantastic job coaching this team. I want to see him draw up more plays that utilize Devin Booker as someone who works away from the ball. Like Set off-ball screens for Devin Booker. And... Find a way to, while that's happening, get Chris Paul in the mid-range area because this guy has been fucking money for his entire career from like the 15 to 18 foot mark. And for the Clippers, uh, there's really nothing more I can say except that if they want to win this series, I truly believe that Chris, that uh, Paul George will have to replicate his performance in game five. Maybe not, you know, in terms of volume. Like, I don't think he's going to need 40 points every night. But, I mean, maybe he will, because if the bench continues to play like garbage, he's definitely going to need to put up all those points. But I still think Phoenix is going to advance to the NBA Finals. But at this point, with how resilient the Clippers have been, it really, they could really pull off this upset. They could come down, they could come back from being down three games to one. Like, I, I, I really don't know what to expect anymore. I've seen it all from the NBA playoffs this season. Like, I've just... I'm fucking, I'm fucking flabbergasted. I, there's nothing more for me to say about this. And with that, I'm going to move on to the last topic of today. And Milwaukee, Atlanta, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about this. I first, I got to find the fucking, I got to find the, um, the series, the series summary. That's, I'm so just fascinated by this series because the Hawks have no business being here. And I can't say that the Bucs have no business being here, but there was a little bit of luck involved 
with them having to face a depleted Nets team. Every listen, every every NBA team that makes it this far in the playoffs is lucky. But luck is involved. Now, this this series is so fucking weird because Atlanta comes out, gets 48 points from Trey Young in the series opener. Jump out to a quick one-nothing lead and you know, take away home court advantage. Home court advantage is neutralized at this point. They then come back the following game and get blasted by 40 by 34 points. Blasted. Absolutely blasted. Trey Young played like dog shit. And that was well, among other things, but Trey Young not being able to do anything on offense really hurt them more than anything else. And then game three, Milwaukee just, see, uh, they get these crazy performances from Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, but it feels like they're super inconsistent because when the Bucks win without them, it's because of Giannis, who's putting up like 35, 15, and 8, which we're accustomed to Giannis doing. but then. In the other games, and in those games, Middleton and Drew Holiday are still playing well. But they're at like 20, 22, 23 points. But then every so often, like in game three, Chris Middleton erupts for 38 points. This guy could not miss anything in the fourth quarter of game three. It was like he was throwing Skittles into a lake. That's how locked in this guy was. And, you know, the Hawks just have like no answer. They just have no answer. What puzzles me the most about the Hawks is how they got here. And all of the numbers say that the Hawks have an above-average defense, and I just don't understand. I, I'm, I'm mentally incapable of understanding how this team is an above-average defense when they have no lockdown defenders at all. Every metric you look at, I think um, post-All-Star break, they're like 12th in defensive rating and 14th in points per game allowed. Again, not great, but above-average. Like, better than the fucking Brooklyn Nets, who have more talent on defense than the Hawks do. Even um, synergy statistics. I think they were like 16th in uh, points allowed per possession. But, well, I also don't want to say that they don't have any good defenders. Clint Capella is the best defender on this team. Now, the games, well, game one and game three have been relatively close. Right? And then game three, I think the Bucks kind of ran away with it in the fourth quarter. I'm just going to double check that. Yeah. 30 to 17 scoring in the fourth quarter, largely thanks to Chris Middleton. Now, the Hawks closing lineup. And this is why I think every game from this point forward will feature Milwaukee just pulling away in the fourth quarter. First point being because the Hawks offense is just going to run out of steam at some point. Trey Young has to tire eventually and he's dealing with this um, bone bruise in his foot that's only making things worse they don't have another guy who can create on the perimeter like that they don't have a Chris Middleton they don't have a Drew Holiday granted they can manufacture points like they're scrappy and they're naive and they think they can you know go out and win every game which I commend I commend them for having that outlook and as a result they just like sometimes they'll just play better sometimes you're confident you just play better than you actually are I've it's happened to me Dozens of times on the park where I'm the fucking worst player there and I managed to, you know, have a game where I just can't miss. It happens. But defensively, their closing lineup includes some five, some combination of these six guys. Trey, obviously. Kevin Herter. 
Bogdan Bogdanovich, um, Danilo Gallinari, Clint Capella, and who the fuck was the other guy? Trey Young. Hold on, let me look at the roster. Wow. And John Collins. Okay. Those, those are their six go-to guys in the fourth quarter that they can construct a lineup. Statistically, Kevin Herter, I don't know how the fuck this happened. This guy's in like the 70th percentile in points allowed per possession, according to Synergy. Is statistically their best defender. Um, Clint Capella has played Giannis pretty well throughout the series. And listen, Giannis is still shooting like 52% when guarded by Clint Capella. But Capella is a big, strong, mobile big man who can at least wear Giannis down. Like Giannis very rarely is going to be able to just run by Clint Capella to the hoop. It's far different than when Blake Griffin was guarding him. And Blake Griffin played Giannis pretty well, mainly because he just sagged off. Blake Griffin was Blake Griffin had such little respect for Giannis's three-point shot that this guy was on the verge of being called for a defensive three seconds with how far back he was standing from Giannis. Like, this guy was in the fucking paint while Giannis was on the three-point line. Capella can't do that, and it's because he doesn't need to, because he can move his feet with Giannis and at least impede his progress a little bit and force Giannis to pass, which is one of his weakest attributes. But everyone else, like, they can just run the whoever offense on quite literally everybody that isn't Clint Capella. Like, if the Hawks feel the need to switch everything, which is generally what happens when you have five smalls in a lineup, which without Clint Capella, I know John Collins is a big guy. They effectively have five smalls. And even then, John Collins is a forgettable defender. And I'm putting that mildly. But you could just seek out the matchup that you want. And I don't know if the Hawks are good enough not to switch because they'll just be getting burned by whoever. As long as Milwaukee can keep the games close and just, you know, kind of kill time and run their half-court offense effectively, of course, get out in the break and run every so often. That might even be better for them to just keep the pace high. But then again, the Hawks are a very young team. Um, I don't know how much fatigue is going to be an issue. I would just focus on running an efficient offense, however that may be, and just conserve energy for the fourth quarter because the Bucks have the luxury of doing this. As we saw, one of these guys is going to pop off in the fourth quarter. And it doesn't have to be Giannis. Could be Chris, Drew Holiday. Shit, could be fucking Brooke Lopez. Makes a couple threes. Um yeah, I think man, I was I'm I'm in this weird spot. I don't want to root for Milwaukee because I'd rather root for Phoenix because they are a genuinely enjoyable NBA team. Not to say that the the Bucks aren't enjoyable, but I think Phoenix is much more dynamic and is just a more entertaining watch. But if the Bucks go on to win a championship, I can at least say that the Nets got beat by the best team in the league. And with that, the show is over. Thank you guys so much for coming to hang out with me today. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, welcome. Everything I'm associated with is in the description box. Down below, if you're listening to this on iTunes, go ahead and leave a rating and a review. Helps me out. 
considerably. Also, subscribe to the show, follow it on whatever podcast player you prefer. And with that, I'll catch you guys in the next one.